What a fantastic night. Absolutely fantastic. We've been going a little while, so please stand up and stretch your legs, turn around. Oh, sorry. You've got to get some energy going. There's, Catherine just in, whispered in my ear that there's plenty of uh, supper later, so if you didn't come prepared, please join us anyway. There's plenty to go around. Love those star, star jumps, Nathan. Awesome. All righty. Our message tonight, I mean, we've, we've been a great celebration, isn't it, with the baptism of Magnolia and Clementine. But uh, let's honour God by coming into his word this morning and, and hopefully we'll, we'll learn something afresh. Hey? Did I say this morning? We've got the Googles or whatever they call it. The, I won't call it a seniors moment because I'm there already, almost. Anyway, now where was I, Nathan? Tonight, tonight, the message tonight as we look into God's word, okay. The message tonight is entitled Identity Theft. Now when I was a uh, prison chaplain and I was wandering around the state looking after some, some chaplains and going in and out of jail and, uh, and so on like that, um, it was quite easy to talk about in one sense. You go get a haircut, you know, and, you, and the haircut person says, oh, what do you do? You know, how, how, what do you do? And I, I tell them what I do. I go in and out of jails and prisons and look after chaplains and and people are intrigued and very curious about that and it creates a lot of conversation and I can give, give quite easily um, some testimonies about God in that space. Uh, but when you're a pastor, um, they ask you what you do and quite often you say, oh, I'm a pastor, conversation pretty much just dies. It's finished, done. And um, so over the years it's been a little bit tricky at times how to do that. But I, I came across a video a few years ago which has been very, very helpful in that space. Now, I'm going to throw it up on the screen in a minute, but the bloke telling the story, he, he is a reverend or pastor, whatever you like, and he's going to tell us a little bit how to explain what he does. People often say to me, they say, Jay John, you know, what, what do you do? And it's always very difficult to know what to say. Because if I say to you that I'm a reverend, which I am, that conjures up certain images in people's minds as to what I might be. So I like to be a little bit creative in telling people what I do. I sat next to this lady on an aeroplane at Heathrow Airport. And I said, hello. And she said, oh, hello. And I said, where are you going? And she says, I'm going to Singapore. Then she said to me, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Australia. I said, what do you do? So she told me. Then she said, what do you do? And I said, well, <laughs> I work for a global enterprise. She said, do you? I said, yes, I do. I said, we've got outlets in nearly every country of the world. She said, have you? I said, yes, we have. I said, we've got hospitals and hospices and homeless shelters. I said, we do marriage work. We've got orphanages. We've got feeding programs, educational programs. I said, we do all sorts of justice and reconciliation things. I said, basically, we look after people from birth to death and we deal in the area of behavioral alteration. <laughs> She went, wow! And it was so loud, her wow. Loads of people turned around and looked at us. She says, what's it called? I said, it's called the church. 
really, isn't it? If we are a follower of Jesus, wow. then we are part of a global enterprise. But not only is it global, it's intergalactic because it includes everyone that's gone before us. Wow. <laughs> How about that one? We've got to remember that one, haven't we? Amen to that, actually. Yeah. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come into your word tonight, we just thank you for your love for us. And Father, we just, just celebrated this, this, this evening, Lord, with Magnolia and Clementine. As a church family and followers of you, Lord, we just give you thanks that there are two more names in the book of life. Father, we just thank you for your word. May we learn something afresh tonight and be encouraged in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. So what are you going to learn, what are you going to, what's God going to say to you, and what are you going to do tonight? So the first statement I want to give you tonight is around this one. It's called a, a statement for you to hang on to. Jesus completely redefines our identity when we give ourselves to him, just as reality itself is suddenly redefined when God shows up. So in life, we spend a lot of time, a great deal of our life, trying to discover who we are and why we are here. And part of that is, if we're really true and honest, we all want to make a difference as we do life. Tonight we're going to take a look at two contrasting views when it comes to your identity and self-image. These two perspectives stand in diametric opposition to one another. So the first one we're going to look at is the world's view. And that is your identity is found through what you do. We live in a world where people really struggle with their identity. They want to present an air on social media that they are always at their best in attitude and appearance, while Instagram, Facebook and Twitter can be sometimes a blessing to connect with people, but sometimes those things can take a toll on how we see ourselves. When our worth is determined by the number of likes, favourites or retweets, then our value will always vacillate based on an image we have tried to advance. A church in the New Testament began to listen to that lie and believe salvation and identity would be derived from what we do. And this church was found in Galatia. It's almost like they felt that since Jesus worked for them on the cross, they needed to do work to earn that spot in heaven. The Apostle Paul points out that they were mistakenly starting to find their identity and salvation through the works they were doing. And Andy's going to bring us our Bible reading tonight, so if you want to turn to your Bibles, it comes from Galatians. Come on up, Andy. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. Thanks, mate. I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God. You are called to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but it is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven, who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. I say again, uh, what we have said before, if anyone preaches uh, any other good news other than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. Thanks, Andy. Pretty serious stuff. 
So try and keep that in mind as we go forward tonight. Sometimes when a parent speaks to his or her children, he or she will repeat something just for emphasis. And the kids quite often might say, Dad, Mum, you just said that. And the parent will reply, I know, I just want to make certain you heard it and understand just how important it is. Now, Paul has received word that due to false preachers, many of the Christians departed and deserted the gospel here. Paul is conveying that legalism and self-righteousness are just terrible sins. In fact, some of Jesus' strongest words of rebuke were spoken to legalistic religious leaders. Some ask why the Bible is so harsh on the legalist. Why is that so bad? Perhaps it's because God knows that so many can be led astray, destroyed and burdened by legalistic teachers. It just cuts the heart out of the gospel, can I say, and reduces Christianity to being no different, no different from all the other religions. The Galatians had a works mentality that said, you need to earn your way to heaven, do your part. Their sentiment seemed to be, I'm glad you've got Jesus and you've experienced his amazing grace, but that's not enough. There was pressure to return to the Old Testament. And let's be honest, some people today are drawn towards a works mentality because God's unconditional love just seems illogical. They don't understand that. The concept of unconditional love from a perfect God seems far-fetched and too incredible. After all, you can't outline neatly into three points and then say, well, that makes sense, because it doesn't. Which is why it is a gift. It's an amazing blessing that we can each receive. We cannot do anything to earn it, but we do need to position our hearts, can I say, in a kingdom way, correctly before the Lord, to repent from our pride and acknowledge our need of God. To receive his grace. And as we humble ourselves, can I say, to him and before him, we will find his power and presence increasing us, filling us. I'm going to put up on the screen just in a minute a, a definition of grace that I have embedded in my heart over the years. It's been a journey to get to this space. Because grace, I believe, we all know that many of us define great as unmerited favour, which it is but I believe it should not be just left at that. It is so, so much more. And this is the uh, definition of grace that I have come to. Grace is the empowering presence of God enabling you to be who he created you to be and to do what he has called you to do. So why is it that many Christians and non-Christians alike continue to boast and brag about what they do in hopes of getting them a little closer to that golden heavenly ticket. The Christian life is about trusting and not trying. A fellow by the name of Matt Proctor, president of Ozark Christian College, asks this question. If you've ever taken a class in logic, he says, do you remember syllogism? Has anybody heard of that word, syllogism? Sounds like an um, algebra thing from maths 1 in grade 11, doesn't it? Really a bit hard. But basically, through syllogism, you set forth two propositions and a conclusion. Let me explain. Just bear with me. If A is true and B is true, then C is true. That's a syllogism. For example, all dogs are animals. We know that. 
All animals have four legs, therefore all dogs have four legs. Sort of how it goes. That's its deductive reasoning as distinct from induction. Now the Latin would be, word for therefore is ergo. And maybe your teacher may have said, if A is true and B is true, ergo C is true. So some people think good works in the worldview will logically get you into heaven. So the two propositions in the world's syllogism are this. One, God hates sin. Two, I do good works. And then the world's conclusion is, ergo, I will go to heaven. But the Bible teaches something different. The Bible's two main propositions are, one, God hates sin. Each of us is a sinner. I'm just going to spread this out a little bit more. Martin Luther said that if you try to get to heaven using logic, you will ergo go to hell. Martin Luther said grace is divinely illogical. The gospel is not a therefore. The gospel is a resounding nevertheless. So let's recap this syllogism. God hates sin. I am a sinner. Nevertheless, I can go to heaven. The gospel of grace is, is not logical, but it's true. Because Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross. Paul himself, the writer of Galatians, is one of the best examples and illustrations of the truth he's talking about. He was a man with great historical guilt. You might remember Saul, Saul of Tarsus he was before Paul. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, self-identified as the worst of sinners. But he says in 1 Timothy 1.14 that the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. And you know what? Paul had the experience of the great nevertheless of the gospel. The result of living under a works-based mentality can mess with one's identity. The law and trying to earn our way to heaven is not good news at all. It simply produces feelings of inadequacy of guilt. It's a treadmill that never, 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 never shuts off. If you are in search of grace, don't allow Satan to get you mired in the mud of guilt. If you are a Christian who has repented of a sin, there's no reason to allow the past to paralyse your power in the present. You need to accept his forgiveness. God loves you as a father loves his child. And I believe you need to realise that God wants you to do good, to do good works for his kingdom. And the thing is, just to make sure you don't do them out of duty, but you do them out of devotion. So here's the second contrasting view when it comes to your identity and self-image. Fortunately, this one comes straight from Scripture, so we'll tackle this one straight in. The biblical view, that is, your identity is found in who you are. That can be, for some of us, a pretty ouchy sort of thing, really, because that one goes against everything that society out there tells us. That doesn't sound like good news to some people. The world tells us we should prefer our identity to be found in what we do. That way we can start stockpiling some good deeds to overload some of those secret little sins beneath the surface. But what if I told you that your identity could come from someone who lived a perfect life? What if I told you that he could become your advocate and transforming power in your life? I want to just tell you a, a very brief little story. It's a beautiful story. 
And it's the story of a woman from Brisbane and her niece. One day, the woman's niece came home from the Christian preschool at their church. Some of the relatives began to go through the normal questions. How was your day? And what happened at school today? Through the course of the conversation, the preschooler shared this news. Jesus wasn't there today. Her surprised mother said, he wasn't? No, Jesus wasn't there, the girl said. He didn't come by because he was out of town today. Everyone kind of chuckled, but it piqued the curiosity of her parents. They did some investigating and found out that the preacher of the church poked his head into the Christian preschool every day to say hi to the kids. Even though he was very busy and swamped with responsibilities, the kids always looked forward to his kind words and big smile. Somehow through the course of time, this little toddler had just assumed that this man was Jesus. Quite a compliment for the minister, wasn't it? But the more we lean on the Holy Spirit and the less we lean on our own understanding, the more we will resemble Christ. And evidently that's what happened with Simon Peter. Something caused Simon Peter's identity to change. We're going to have a quick look at that tonight. In case you don't know this story, let's just replay the regression a little bit. And you'll see here tonight the identity theft that Satan masterfully pulled off. Jesus and his disciples, here's the scene, are eating the Last Supper in the upper room. And we read about a conversation Jesus had with the disciples in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus said to them, Tonight, every one of you is going to desert me. Peter bristled at this and said something along the lines of, No way, Lord. They all might dump you, but not me. In fact, I am willing to die for you. Matthew 26, 34, 35 tells us this. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. This very night before the rooster crows, he says to Peter, You will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all of the other disciples said the same. And in just a matter of hours, we find that Jesus was arrested in the garden. All the disciples fled and ran for their lives. Peter and John followed Jesus from a safe distance. That's at some point, as they got closer to the courtyard of the high priest, Peter went one direction and John went another direction. They separated. You know, they've hung in there pretty well. But things were about to change for Simon Peter. He was trying to find out what was going on with Jesus at this time when suddenly a young slave girl came up and said, You're a follower of Christ Jesus. Simon Peter said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know Jesus. To get away and try to keep his anonymity, he moved over to a charcoal fire where a group of people were milling around. It was a little cold outside, so he leaned in closer to the fire to warm himself, but the light of the fire revealed his identity. Another person saw his face and said, Well, you were with Jesus. You're one of his followers, aren't you? Simon Peter replied, I'm telling you, I don't know this Jesus. You keep talking about I don't know. I don't know about him. Don't know him at all. 
And again, he moved aside. Sometime later, a third person who had seen him in the garden when Jesus was arrested said, You were with Jesus. You were with the Galilean. What Simon Peter said next is difficult for us to translate into today's vernacular. But basically, he called down curses. It's as if he said, I will go to hell if I know this man. And no sooner had the words escaped his lips than a rooster began to crow. And at that precise moment, that precise moment, Jesus was being moved from one place to another. His face beaten and bloodied. He was bruised. They dragged Jesus past at the moment Simon Peter made that third denial. And look at what it says in Luke twenty-two sixty-one. Place yourself in Simon Peter's shoes. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. <clears throat> Talk about an unforgettable moment. As Peter began to realise the prediction had come true. He probably thought, I cannot believe what I've done. I've sold out my saviour. Now the Bible tells us he ran off into the darkness and wept bitterly. I love the way the message paraphrases it. It says, and he cried and he cried and he cried. Got the picture? This wasn't some accidental slip of the tongue. Three different times Simon Peter betrayed his master and close friend. His dreams and his hopes were shattered. My guess is that at some point in your life, I know I've experienced it, you also have experienced a moment like Simon Peter had, where you just felt so low, so defeated, so disappointed in what you've done, and it seemed like your life had been broken into pieces. I think we can all relate to that, but you know what Satan does? It's in the valley that Satan loves to try and steal your identity. Because you know what he does? He gets us to focus on what we've done rather than who we can be in Christ. Satan often tells us, he's the father of lies, that you are never going to change, that you are never good enough. But what do we know from this story tonight? if we keep going in the Bible. On the third day after Jesus' death, on the Sunday, Jesus conquered the grave. And then weeks later, the Holy Spirit made his presence known, just like Jesus promised. Simon Peter had a change of identity. Peter moved from fear to faith, from telling lies to save his life, to preaching to risk his life. Peter was a great preacher, Acts 2, have a look at that. Remember, he preached and there's 3,000 people gave their life to the Lord. The Holy Spirit began to personally indwell those who accepted Christ as their Saviour and Lord. And he promised to do the same thing for every person who accepts Jesus today. Here's the good news that comes from that. The Holy Spirit can do in our lives, you know what, what we can't. That means transformation becomes possible. Simon Peter started to change. He began to rely on the living Holy Spirit and his boldness flourished. So let's quickly look at some evidence of this change. So it's just not me telling you. Acts 4, 
Verse 13 says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. From here on in, the disciples were no longer in hiding. They were stepping out in faith. They had experienced a drastic change. This is an exciting passage because it reveals that the crowd knew Jesus and somehow the preaching and courage of these two ordinary men resembled Christ. It wasn't some toddler who saw Jesus in the life of Simon Peter. These were adults that saw this. They couldn't deny the resemblance. It astonished them. Evidently, Peter and John were becoming like Jesus. They were putting their past mistakes behind them. They had repented and were intent on being known by who they are. We could even say by whose they are. So if you are a Jesus follower, you belong to him, regardless of the sins in your past. They may be sins of self-righteousness or of rebellion, but regardless of your particular list that you might have, Christ offers a new identity. But you know, there is a, an element of being beware. Because you know what Satan does? He knows you and by name. He knows your name, but the blighter calls you by your sin. He'll do it every time. Knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. But our Saviour Jesus, he knows your sin, but he calls you by your name. There is a huge difference in that. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So to wrap things up a little bit tonight, earlier I told you about the church at Galatia. So as we finish up, allow me to tell you briefly about another church in the New Testament. Talk a little bit about Galatia. You probably are somewhat familiar with a couple of books in the Bible. It's in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. These were actually letters written from the Apostle Paul to the Christians in the city of Corinth. And you have to understand that the first century Corinth was a sex-saturated society. In a sense, to give you an understanding, Corinth would make Las Vegas look like an Amish community. That's how serious it was. I mean, there'd be stupid things, I call it. People, if they wanted prayer due to some physical struggle, they would take a plaster of Paris of whatever body part they had was causing them anguish or pain. Then they would hang it up from the top of the temple courts and people would come in and pray for that part of their body. It was a sexually charged society because there was just such permissiveness and their appetites couldn't be quenched. They continued to try different things so they could get some type of euphoria and high. Some of the things that took place in Corinth back then were pretty unbelievable. At their temple, they had temple prostitutes. So they would go to church to worship and some would pay to have sex with a temple prostitute, knowing a portion of the money would go to the temple treasury. How depraved and disgusting is that? If ever there was a bizarre setting and a city that desperately needed a message of grace and hope, it was first century Corinth. And you know what Paul did? He went there in the midst of such brazen behaviour and started preaching about oneness with Christ and how the people could have an identity change through Jesus. He started sharing the gospel and something happened over time. These people who were physically faithless in every way you can imagine Embrace the gospel message of love, hope and transformation through Jesus Christ. They repented of lives, lived for sin and self. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, 
He knew them well. He wrote to them from that framework. Now with that background in your heart, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, Paul wrote to them, to the church there, and said, Don't you realise that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves, he says. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Of our God. There was a drastic change in the lives of many who lived in Corinth. There was a change in their identity because God didn't see them for what they were. And when you think about it, why would he? They are completely different because they had been washed, sanctified and justified through Jesus. This is who they became. Paul knew this church, so when he wrote this letter from miles and miles away, he was envisioning their individual faces. He knew their stories. In his mind, he seemed to walk through every row in that church considering what their past sin struggle had been. And then he said, that's what you were. That was your past. Now your identity can be found in Jesus Christ through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. He gave you incredible value when you were created in the image of God. And when Jesus was willing to die for you, It's so freeing to be identified with the one who is perfect instead of being known by all of our mistakes and weaknesses. Simple message tonight. Just a simple one. Don't confuse what you do with who you are. And don't confuse what you've done with who you can become. Your identity can be found in Christ and not in your sinful self. God specialises in giving new identities. Don't take my word for it. Take it from the Apostle Paul, who experienced it firsthand, and put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So in closing tonight, if you are ready tonight for a new identity in Jesus, and you have been thinking about this for a while, maybe just putting it off or just a little bit of fear, you need to move into that space of faith. The Holy Spirit is working in your heart and prompting you. Turn that fear into faith. With Jesus in your life, it is not about what you've done. It's about who you can become. Just ask you to come forward tonight if that is your desire to find that new identity in Christ.